Thanks, Chris. Looks like this mic is about right for me. I was noticing it touched uh, uh, the lower chest of um, Andrew, but um, <clears throat> I should introduce myself. My name is Phil Watkins. I'm one of your elders here, and um, I'm a professor of psychology at Eastern Washington University, which hopefully you won't hold against me, but it will explain a few things uh, examples that I give later on in this message on Luke 7. Um, in the first service, I discovered it was probably I didn't introduce myself, and Carrie introduced me after I'd given the message, which was, I think, unfortunate because I think about 60% of the people there were new families, weren't they? <laughs> so um, anyway, that's who I am. Yes, I am Dr. Phil. Um, <laughs> So let me start with kind of a downer. Bad is stronger than good. This was the title of a now famous review published about 20 years ago. Now the authors were not arguing that bad is stronger than good in any kind of ultimate sense. They were only arguing that when it comes to psychology and our emotional responses, bad is stronger than good. In their compelling review, they concluded that bad emotions, bad interactions, bad feedback, and bad events have more psychological power over us than good. Criticism takes precedence over compliment, hostility over harmony, pain over pleasure, and disappointment over delight. In a nutshell, people spend a lot more psychological capital on the bad than on the good in their life. Now, I experienced this principle very intimately at the end of every quarter for the last 30 years. I just got my 30-year pin. Um, <clears throat> so at the end of every quarter, I hand out student evaluations. And if I have a class of 40, 30 to 33 may say, this is a pretty good class. They like it at least a little, some like it a lot. And they may say, great class, enjoyed it a lot, it was hard, but I learned a lot, I'd recommend this class to other students. You know, they'll write, maybe, if they write anything, a sentence or two. Five or six of the students won't say anything of much, uh, they could care less and probably wish they didn't have to do the evaluation. And then pretty much in every class that I've ever taught in the last 30 years, there's three students that absolutely hate the class. And those students will usually write two or three paragraphs as to why this is the worst class that they've ever taken in college. I'm glad that Mark is nodding his head, that I'm not the only one college professor who experiences this. Two or three paragraphs you know, why uh, this is the worst class ever and I am the spawn of the devil. Now, after I read my student evaluations, here I've got three-fourths of them have given me compliments. Three of 40 have said they didn't like the class. What do I spend the next day thinking about? It's, I obsess over those three negative responses Bad is stronger than good. I think this issue is particularly relevant for our COVID pandemic times. If you're anything like me, I'm just tired of this. 
I want it all to end, and I feel as though for many of us, it's all coming to an emotional head. So during these uncertain times of turmoil and lockdown, the principle that bad is stronger than good is particularly powerful. So what can we do to overcome this insidious psychological principle? What can we do to make sure that we're not drowning in all the bad stuff of our life right now? Well, once again, Scripture reorients us. Scripture gives us the right perspective on this issue and leads and refocuses on what is really important in this life. And guess what? What is really important in this life is uncompromisingly good and no one and no thing can take it from us. So let's explore that this morning. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, would that we just hear your words clearly this morning. Soften our hearts, open our ears that we may hear your word and we may accept your word into the depths of our being, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we come. Amen. So let me get, begin this morning by asking you this question. What is your most important and consistent spiritual struggle? Now, if you're anything like me, my guess is it's something related to this. Why don't I love God more? In my most honest moments, I ask myself, why don't I love God more? And my guess is that for you too, one of the deepest desires of your heart is that you would love God more. And Jesus, I think, would add, he would say a second is like it. Why don't I love others more? I think it's wonderful that Jesus focuses our obedience on something very simple but very difficult. The great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. As I think about these pandemic times, I think it is so easy for us to, uh, to make others the evil person, even our brothers and sisters. There's a certain way of thinking in Christianity that I have recognized that I just, I just don't want to hear it. I don't, I don't want to even converse with these folks. But Jesus says to me, no. Love your neighbor as yourself. As Christ church, we are to be known by our love. And I think we all know that the reason we don't love each other as we should is because we don't love God as we should. So the question remains, why don't I love God more? So let's take a look at Jesus' answer to this important question in Luke 7. So turn with me again to Luke 7, if you would. And what I'd like to do this morning is first look at the passage itself. I'll make a couple of observations about the, the uh, passage. And then we're going to look more carefully at this question, why don't I love God more? 
and try to see what this passage has to teach us on this issue. So, first of all, let's go ahead and dig in on the passage. The first thing I want you to see about the passage is its beauty. This section of Luke follows a beautiful chiastic structure, which I hope to show you. And within this structure, we'll find even more beautiful symmetry and Hebrew poetry. So it starts off with the introduction, introducing us to the Pharisee, Jesus, and the woman. Then it proceeds to a description of the outpouring of Jesus' love. Then to the first interaction between Simon and Jesus, where Simon the Pharisee judges wrongly. Then to the point of the spear, if you would, the parable. Then Jesus' second dialogue with Simon, where Simon this time judges rightly. Then Jesus recalls, recounts the outpouring of the woman's love. And finally, we have the conclusion, which involves, again, the Pharisee, Jesus, and the woman. So note this beautiful symmetry in how uh, the story is told in Luke. Um, And, of course, at the middle of the symmetry is the main point. So why does Luke tell us this story in this way? Well, first of all, it makes it much more memorable. It's easy to remember the story with this structure, right? Secondly, it emphasizes the point of the story because it's at the very center, and that's the parable itself. And then third, and perhaps most importantly, is just beauty. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful story, and Luke wants us to make sure we see its beauty by communicating it in this beautiful way. So, now, let me make a few observations about the story. We're going to go through it again. First of all, let's look again at the introduction in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, this is a fairly brief statement we really need to unpack because it's loaded. And it's loaded with what is not there. So I want you to see what is not provided for Jesus when he enters the Pharisee's house. None of the traditional courtesies or formalities are provided by Simon to Jesus. Now, to Simon's credit, We know that this was a formal banquet given for Jesus because they were reclining at table rather than just using chairs. And this was typical for inviting a respected rabbi to dine at someone's home. But I want you to see very clearly Simon's snub of Jesus. If one was throwing a banquet for a notable rabbi, there would be some important courtesies shown to him. But... There was no traditional kiss of greeting from Simon. There was no water and oil so that Jesus could wash his hands and feet. No oil to soothe Jesus' head. Now, although it's clear from later in the passage that Jesus, in fact, did notice Simon's snub, he makes nothing of it. He simply proceeds to his place at the table. I want you to see very clearly what this snub would be like in today's world. Let's say I invited a well-known Bible teacher over for a fancy meal. Let's say I invited John Piper to my house because I'm such good friends with Johnny and we ride bikes together and stuff like that. And of course, if I were to invite 
John Piper over to my house, I would invite everyone I know who would be impressed with me having John Piper at my house. I fix a bountiful banquet, with, and all my friends are there waiting for John to arrive. We're busy, of course, discussing the most relevant theological issues of the day. And then, the guest of honor, John Piper knocks on the door. Well, I'm busy conversing with my friends, and I yell at the door, come on in, the door is open, and proceed to virtually ignore John. I don't greet him at the door. I don't welcome him. I don't take his coat. I don't offer him a drink or any of my hors d'oeuvres. I simply let him fend for himself, and he opens the door, looks around, and takes what he thinks is his seat at my dinner table. Perhaps this gives you a little taste of what Simon's snub would have been like to Jesus. And now let's look at the outpouring of the woman's love in verses 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This woman was the town sinner. Very likely the town harlot, but at the very least, she was well known for being a promiscuous woman. And she pours out on Jesus a beautiful act of love, a somewhat scandalous and sensual expression, but an uninhibited expression of her love nonetheless. This beautiful expression is again communicated in beautiful poetry as the writer actually uses a chiastic structure within this chiastic structure of the story. But the important question that we must answer here about this passage is why was she so overcome with emotion for Jesus? Now there's some scholars who argue that she was crying because she was angry at Simon's snub But I think the more obvious explanation that Jesus later verifies in the text is that these were tears of gratitude. She was overwhelmed in gratitude and love for Jesus. But this begs the question, grateful for what? It must be that she was grateful for Jesus' forgiveness. She knew that God had forgiven her. The rest of the story simply doesn't make sense unless she knew that she had been forgiven. She came to Simon's house to express her gratitude and love for Jesus who had forgiven her. Surely, she heard Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God, that God loves to forgive sinners, that he wants to draw all men to himself, regardless of how badly they have messed up in this life, that he came to save rather than condemn. The town's sinner had really received the truth of God that Simon just could not receive, that though her sins were many, God had forgiven her. And so she comes to pour out her love and gratitude 
on Jesus. And then we have the first dialogue between Simon and Jesus where Simon judges wrongly. Let's look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Simon had just witnessed a beautiful act of love. But what is his response? Well, if this man was our prophet, he would have known, for she is a sinner. Simon's cynical response has prevented him from seeing this beautiful expression of love. And how often my cynicism prevents me from seeing the beauty of God. But I suppose that's another sermon for another Sunday. And then Jesus shows Simon very clearly that he is at least a prophet, for not only does he know that this woman is a sinner, he also knows the cynical thoughts of Simon. Jesus then gets very personal with Simon. The writer up to this point has simply referred to Simon as the Pharisee. But Jesus deals with Simon now in a very personal way. Simon, I have something to say to you. And now we reach the climax and center of the story, the parable itself. Let's look at that in verses 41 and 2. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? One can't fail to notice in this parable that God is the money lender. He's the creditor. Simon is the one with the small debt, and the woman is the one who owed the large debt. But I want you to notice one important thing. Neither of the two could pay off their debt. And moreover, I want you to take note that the creditor completely forgave their debts. There was no hint of, well, I'll forgive uh, a little of the debt so you can pay the rest off, or I'll forgive the debt for now and you can pay me later. God wants us to respond to him in the joy and gratitude for our forgiveness, not in the obligation of indebtedness. But again, that's another sermon for another Sunday and really isn't the point of the parable. The main point of the parable, I think, is fleshed out in Jesus' second dialogue with Simon. So let's look at that dialogue in verses 42 and 43. Jesus asks Simon, now which of them will love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Clearly, the one who had felt more forgiven loved more. Now, Jesus recounts the woman's outpouring of, of love in verses 44 through 48. Verse 44. 
Then turning toward the woman and speaking to Simon, he said, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. There's some scholars who believe that because there's no word in Aramaic for grateful, what Jesus was actually saying was she was forgiven many, many sins, and so she is very, very grateful. So what was it? Was it gratitude or was it love? Well, of course, the answer is yes. It was a deep gratitude for her forgiveness that moved her to this outpouring of love. And so it is with us. We love brothers and sisters not because we're good lovers, but because he first loved us. Out of a recognition and acceptance of the outpouring of his grace toward us, we are very, very grateful. And so we respond in love to him. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth, concluded Karl Barth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Grace follows gra gratitude follows grace like thunder, lightning. And in this, we begin to see Jesus' answer to our question. We don't love much because we don't feel very forgiven. But I don't want you to miss a subtle but important shift that Jesus makes here. In this parable, it was obvious that God was the creditor who forgave. But notice what Jesus does. Now Jesus puts himself into the position of the one who forgave. Everyone there in Simon's house knew that God did not grant forgiveness unless a sacrifice was made at the temple and appropriate compensation for the sin was made. Because the sin of this woman was much, there was no way in their eyes that she could ever compensate for her sin. No way that she could come back into relationship with God. But without temple, sacrifice, or compensation, Jesus forgives. This would have been startling. It was unthinkable. This was amazing grace. And those at Simon's banquet did not miss the gravity of Jesus' forgiveness here. Let's look at the conclusion in verses 49 to 50. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
And so now we return to our original question, why don't I love God more? Jesus' very simple but profound answer from Luke 7 is, I don't love him much because I don't feel very forgiven. So let me try to uh, pictorially represent why I don't love God more. So I have a lack of love for God. Why is that? Well, I think it's because of my lack of gratitude to God. And why am I not very grateful to God? It's because I don't feel very forgiven by God. So this begs an important question. Why don't I feel very forgiven by God? Why don't I experience God's grace and forgiveness in my walk with him? I think there may be a number of reasons, but I'd like to suggest two. First, I'm convinced that I don't feel very forgiven because I don't really believe that I've sinned all that much. Often I act as though I'm a pretty good guy, and if I'm honest, I, you know, I have to admit that I am Simon. And I don't love much because I don't feel I've much to be forgiven of. So is it really the case that Simon doesn't have nearly the debt of sin as the town harlot does? Or is it simply that he thinks God doesn't have much to forgive him for? Well, for me at least, I confess that it must be the latter. I've come to believe that my sin of the law keeper is much less and much more noble than the sin of the lawbreaker. But Jesus' consistent message throughout his ministry, and certainly this message was echoed and amplified by Paul, was that the sin of the law keeper has taken him just as far from, from God as the sin of the lawbreaker. Remember that Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son was not about one son but two, the prodigal and his elder brother. And really, although the elder brother lived in his father's house, he was just as separated from his father as his younger brother was when he was in a far-off land wasting his father's money in wanton hedonism. But the younger brother recognized that he was far from his father, and the tragedy is that the elder brother seemed to think that he was just fine in his self-righteousness. The prodigal returned to his father in repentance, but we're never really sure in Jesus' paragraph, uh, parable what happened to his elder brother. And brothers and sisters, can we talk both literally and metaphorically, I am that elder brother. And you know, I think I'm pretty righteous. I'm pretty moral. I'm pretty spiritual. And all the while, I'm building up dead works of righteousness so that I can be just as independent from God as the prodigal. And in my spiritual pride, I don't recognize how far from the Father I really am. I am the elder brother. I am Simon. And because I don't think I need much forgiveness, I completely miss the beauty of his deep and complete forgiveness of me. So perhaps I don't feel very forgiven because I don't feel that God has much to forgive in me. Perhaps I'm not very grateful to my God because I keep going back 
on my promise that I need to admit that I am utterly incapable of the righteousness of God. And in my self-righteousness, I miss the beauty of his grace. Second, I think I don't feel very forgiven because I've grown accustomed to his grace, if I may butcher that famous lyric from My Fair Lady. I have lived in the grace of God for nigh unto 50 years, and although I, at times I get new glimpses of the glory of his grace, I must confess that for the most part, I become accustomed to his goodness. I've gotten used to his forgiveness. I've even grown to take his grace for granted. There's a well-known emotional law in psychology that can work for us or against us. It's the so-called law of habituation. Very simply, when you're exposed to a constant stimulus over time, we stop reacting to it. In simple terms, we get used to it. This is good when it comes to hassles in our life, but the principle works with good things too. And God is so good, and he's so faithful to us that we grow accustomed to his grace, and then we take it for granted. And then we might even think we deserve it. In Deuteronomy, which was Moses' last message to the people of God before his death and before their entry into the promised land, he says to Israel, Take care, lest after all the goodness that God is going to pour onto you in the promised land, you lose your humility and forget the Lord your God. And what's the next step to taking God's goodness for granted and forgetting his grace? Beware, says Moses, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. This is a very natural psychological process for the very reason that God is faithful in his forgiveness, we begin to become accustomed to his face, accustomed to his grace, accustomed to our place in him. And the next very subtle psychological step is then we think we deserve all this goodness God's shown me so much grace because I'm such a great guy. And suddenly, grace is completely undermined. Becoming accustomed to his grace is an insidious process in our spiritual life. So what do we do to fight it? Moses says several times in Deuteronomy 8, don't forget, remember, don't forget where God has brought you from. And isn't that one of the primary reasons we gather together? As a community of Christ, we gather together not to, we gather together to not forget, to remember what he has done for us and what he is doing for us, to remember his grace, to confess together the depth of our rebellion, to celebrate his forgiveness together. The words of an old Stephen Curtis Chapman song, I suppose, they're all old now, um, bring home this point well. He wrote the song after singing in a prison with Chuck Colson's ministry. He saw a prisoner in chains and it overwhelmed him and he wrote, there's no one more thankful to sit at the table than the one who remembers from his pain. And no heart loves greater than the one who is able to recall the time when all it knew 
with shame. The wings of forgiveness can take us to heights we've never seen. But the wisest ones, they will never lose sight of where they were set free. Remember your chains. Remember the prison that once held you before the love of God broke through. Remember the place you were without grace. When you see where you are now, remember your chains. And remember your chains are gone. So, why don't I love God more? Jesus' very simple but profound answer is, I don't love him much because I don't feel very forgiven. Why don't I love God more? Well, I don't feel very forgiven by God, and because of that, I have a lack of gratitude to my God, and because of that, I have a lack of love for my God. And why don't I experience the depth and comprehensiveness of his forgiveness? Well, I'm, I fear I'm suffering from the elder brother syndrome. I feel that I don't need all that much forgiveness, and I fail to recognize how the sin of my self-righteousness separates me from the Father just as much as the hedonism of the prodigal does. And secondly, I don't feel very forgiven by God because I've grown accustomed to his grace. And this acknowledgement calls me to not forget, to remember his grace that is new every morning and to celebrate his forgiveness together. And so I'd like to conclude where we began with Luke 7, in this time in Eugene Peterson's translation from the message. Then turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I came to your home, you provided no water for, for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? She was forgiven many, many sins, and so she is very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Then he spoke to you, I forgive your sins. Bad is stronger than good. That rather cynical psychological principle can simply dominate our consciousness in these times. There's so much bad that can easily overwhelm me, social unrest, concern about the direction of our country, lockdown, quarantine, social separation from those we love. The other day I was talking about that with a good friend about some difficult issues, and at the end of that conversation it was just felt wrong that I couldn't hug him. We haven't spent Thanksgiving with those we love. We might not spend Christmas with those we love. We can't sing. We can't even sing Christmas carols. Right now, the bad can so easily drown out the good in our lives. 
but God has given us the gift of gratitude that amplifies all the good that God has and will continue to bring into our lives. And what is that uncompromising good that no one or no thing can ever take from us? Proverbs 20, 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. There is a word that overcomes all of this darkness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear the word of Jesus this morning. Though your sins be many, I forgive your sins. Go in peace. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, this morning we pray for a new revelation of your forgiveness of us. May we not grow accustomed to your grace, O oh Lord. May it, may it in your mercies be new to us again this morning and every morning. O oh Lord, as Martin Luther said, may we preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we forget it every day. May we celebrate your grace and forgiveness with us this morning, O oh Lord, and may it become real to us again. In Jesus' name we come. Amen.